Hey, listeners. Before today's, yeah, a little bit of a different start here, right? Before today's episode gets going, I've got a surprise for you. Don't worry, Parrish is still here. But before I reveal the surprise, I'm going to ask you for one small thing because I'm about to change your day. I know you're going to like, no, I know you're going to love what I'm about to drop into your ears. It's an endorphin charge, it's a renewal of life. So many of you have been so awesome and rated this podcast five stars and given it great reviews. We appreciate that. And we know a lot of you still have not found the time to do it. Totally understandable. But since I'm about to give you something you didn't even realize you wanted so badly, all we want in return is a heavy influx of subscriptions, five-star ratings, and reviews on the Apple Podcast page. Because we love doing this pod for you and because hopefully you really enjoy the conversations and ruminations we find ourselves having. And because check the calendar. Because this is... March. Hey there, it's Gary Parish. It's Sunday, March 3rd, 2019. Welcome back to the Eye on College Basketball podcast where we sometimes discuss camel fighting and leaky black. Matt Norlander is here with me, and it was a busy weekend in college basketball. Tennessee destroyed Kentucky at Thompson Bowling Arena. LSU won at Alabama, so the Vols and Tigers are now tied atop the SEC standings with Kentucky one game behind them. Gonzaga won by double digits at St. Mary's. Finished 16-0 in the WCC. Wofford won by double digits at Sanford to finish 18-0 in the Southern Conference. Indiana completed a regular season sweep of Michigan State. Houston fell at home to UCF. Texas Tech and Kansas State both won, so they remain a game ahead of Kansas in the Big 12 standings in this final week of the regular season. Iowa lost at home to Rutgers, so Fran McCaffrey's suspension was costly, and we're going to get into some of that, perhaps most of that, before we're done. But when I woke up Sunday morning, the league college basketball story on SportsCenter was the post-game incident in Logan, Utah. Utah State beat Nevada 81-76 late Saturday. Massive win for the Aggies. They moved to 30th in the net. They now have two Quadrant 1 wins. They're now a 9 seed in Jerry Palm's updated bracket. But Utah State's win wasn't the reason this was a national story. What happened after the game was the story. By now, if you're somebody who listens to a college basketball podcast, you've probably seen the video. If not, Norlander, can you, to the best of your abilities, because you wrote about this on Sunday, please explain to the listeners what happened late Saturday at Utah State. Sure, GP. This is indeed March. Great to be here. Now, this this became a story overnight because this game happened late, and then the video that emanated late uh, really started to circulate and go viral well after um, well after midnight Eastern. So Utah State gets the win. You know, they they. They get a, a win that very well potentially vaults them into the NCAA tournament in the process by getting such a humongous win that's good for the program, it's good for the Mountain West. But in doing so, you know, the the store gets flo- you know, the court gets stormed on Nevada um, for the third time. Nevada's lost three times this season, and all three times they have had the court stormed on them, as one would expect. So, in the hallway afterward, um, we see video. Um, the clip that was uh, captured was from Jake Edmonds, who's a KUTV local reporter. Uh, there's a lot of things at play here. One, you almost never see this caught on video. And what I mean by this is teams walking into their hallways after a game. And it appeared to be that there were a, um, 
a few media members, or maybe it was, you know, team media. I don't know. There were a lot of people that did not look like they were affiliated with Utah State or Nevada in the hallways here. Now, Nevada, because the court was stormed and the local on-site arena security and uh, and other personnel that are responsible for separating the crowd from the from the teams, uh, the way that the, the storm happened and then the security came out, apparently Nevada had to leave through the exit that would lead directly to Utah State's locker room instead of the other side of the court because apparently that was that was blocked off. We still and I thought Paris in time in time for this podcast, I thought we'd have more information, but we are still missing out on a lot. We have not had a statement from the Mountain West yet. We haven't had a statement from Utah State. Nevada's athletic director put out a statement now, the, the video itself, which is linked in the story on CBSSports.com, will forewarn it is laced with profanity, uh, extremely strong language. And what you have is Jordan Caroline, who by most accounts, as far as I know, is actually a, a fairly jovial kind of player. Like, he looks like he is having fun when he's playing on the game. He doesn't have this reputation, but he is furious. Now, what he's furious at, we still do not know. There was some speculation about whether the, the court storm might have set him off or something else. I was told by a source on the Nevada side that, in fact, it might have been something that had to do with the Utah State staff and during or after the handshake line. So it wasn't necessarily the court storm that led to this huge story that was happening. There was something that had to do with what an assistant or someone else on staff may or may not have said to Caroline that he heard or misheard. I can't speak to the validity of any of that. We have not heard official word from anyone yet. But the video shows Caroline breaking the glass on a fire extinguisher case, and then he is ready to throw. He is absolutely ready to go out and fight. Now, he has his teammates and other staffers and people with the Nevada program hold him back. Eventually, the the, the camera pans some seconds later to seeing the staff arguing with what appears to be uniform personnel and officers. Maybe the angle isn't great, so maybe they're, you know, they're still, they have issues with uh, with Utah State, but they're complaining that their players were touched. They have issues with what happened with the court storm. So with what I was told, uh, it doesn't necessarily match up directly with what you hear Nevada staffers complaining about how there wasn't seemingly enough done to separate the Nevada team from the the Utah State uh, fans that stormed onto the floor. Subsequently, Eric Musselman did not speak with the media. None of the Nevada players spoke with the media. I'm still not sure whether that's technically against Mountain West policy in regard to Musselman, if he is obligated, uh, with the exception of um, either being outright ejected or some sort of health issue or some other emergency to speak with the media. But, yeah, this was a... this was a story we have not seen before just because you normally don't see like this is this is real. This was Nevada losing a hotly contested game, a close game, a game that it frankly needed if it wanted to have real hopes of landing on the four line, maybe even the three line, they'd lose it and it's an emotional environment afterward and uh and and Caroline was kind of at the center of it, but uh that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. For those who are listening to the podcast, I'm guessing you've probably seen the video and it's wild. Um but we still wait and Maybe it'll come Sunday night, but GP, we're we're approaching nine Eastern on the East Coast here. I'm inclined to think that the Mountain West may, in fact, just wait until Monday. It obviously wants to make sure it has all its facts together before putting out whatever statement it's going to put out uh, and offering any kind of discipline, if indeed it does. We don't know the details of that, um, but that's where we are with this. What are your thoughts on what happened? Well, um, you mentioned that this story developed overnight. I woke up at, and for no reason other than I just woke up 
I like I, it's not because I had something to do. I just woke up at 4 a.m. on Saturday morning. I, I went to bed around midnight, woke up at four and never went back to sleep. Um, so I watched, you know, I did CBS Sports HQ stuff all day. You and I did some HQ stuff together. Um, I watched games all day. I wrote about Tennessee, Kentucky. And uh, my point is I, I passed out at some point, like around probably 9.45, 10 o'clock. So I saw a lot of, um, most of, uh, the Nevada-Utah um, State game. But at some point during that game, I fell asleep because I woke up on my couch at like 2 o'clock in the morning. And that's when I realized what had happened. And I'm like, oh, wow. Um, you know, like it, 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 court storming gone bad. Because you're right. We don't know what set Jordan Caroline off still at this moment. Um, but on that video that you're referencing, which, as you point out, is wild. Because it's, it, it starts with Jordan Caroline punching glass. I mean, you talk about things you don't see every day. How about, and it's loud, um, Parrish. All, all, all conference basketball players punching glass, right? Yeah. I mean, you don't see that every day. So it starts there, and then it gets, um, you know, they're having to hold him back. He's going after somebody. It's unclear who. Um, but but there is, in that video, Nevada staffers, and I thought it was interesting because you got certain members of the staff, like, fired up, cussing at law enforcement officials or at least secure, uniform security of some sort. And then Muss is there. Like, he, best I can tell, Muss doesn't say a word the whole time. He's yeah, just he like, kind of just like he's in the pack and then he kind of moves along there. I almost feel like I'll let you continue. There are two different things at play here. Now, I don't know this for certain, but it's because Caroline, he he seems to be mad because he, he listen, we're trying to decipher what he says. But I, I think he's really ticked off because someone called him the N word and he's ready to fight whoever that was. And if you watch the video of the storm. They're on the floor, Paris, but we it's not – Nevada's team doesn't get enveloped. The handshake line commences. Like, the teams go through, and in fact, Utah State coach Craig Smith stops – I don't know who it is, but he stops and basically, as opposing coaches do, stops one of the Nevada players and it says whatever he says, but it looks to be in good nature. So there are elements here that at least we have not seen yet on video, and so that's why still there's a, a bit of a serious element to it. But I know you have a grander point that you want to make. Yeah, so um – well, there is a, a, a video of the handshake line that Rob Doster, our buddy from NBC Sports, tweeted on Sunday afternoon that doesn't show any physical contact with the Nevada players, but it does appear, as Rob points out, some, one of the fans does run up and, and yell something at Jordan Caroline because Jordan Caroline stops and turns around, at least briefly. So I don't know what that was about, but this person said something that made Jordan Caroline pause. And stop and turn around. Um, so whatever. Um, I, my point is, uh, in the video, you do have Nevada staffers, the, some of the ones that are yelling and upset, um, saying that the fans touched our players. Now, I, I didn't see that with my own eyeballs, and I don't know if that's what set off what happened. But according to at least one Nevada staffer, you know, the fans were touching our players. Where was your urgency when that was going on? So... The point is that um, clearly something that happened in that court storming, at least according to some Nevada staffers, contributed to the ugly scene that we subsequently saw. Perhaps it wasn't the uh, main thing, but it was something. And it ignited, to some degree, um, a court uh, it reignited the court storming debate on Sunday morning. Because when I did wake up, and jump on Twitter, um, 
I saw our friend Seth Davis, our buddy Mike DeCourcy, both tweeting about court stormings and how they need to go away, which is something anybody who's been listening to this podcast for years knows that I subscribe to. I'll be honest. I don't remember your position on court stormings. I'm, they should be outlawed completely. I, if I remember correctly, I don't think you go that far with me. I'm not as far as you with it. I got tired of the court storming debate about eight years ago. We have something like this annually and nothing changes. Hey, maybe on our next podcast, we update this story to say the Mountain West after this incident has decided that court storming is completely banned within the league from here on out. And any fan base that violates it, uh, a first time offense will be a $100,000 fine toward its member school. I'm not expecting that to happen. Um, I don't think that court storming brings uh, that valuable of an element to college basketball. Um, you can do it in an organized way, but frankly, it's a mob mentality and it's something that's very hard to plan against. I will say this, your Utah State, you know you're playing for a bid potentially. Like You know if you beat Nevada, you're the, the chances that you get into the NCAA tournament, if, if you're in the building, you're generally aware of this, okay? So um, if you're the school's administration, you need to be well prepared for this. You need to staff the building accordingly. I don't care if it costs you an extra 10 grand. You need to be prepared for this. And so, and even, hell, at the beginning, the game during it's during halftime and even if you want to say during the final four minutes over the loudspeaker because hey you know what maybe that's a little bit of even home gym gamesmanship if we win this game fans give the opposing team the opportunity to shake hands walk off the floor please respect that then we'll let you run on I know Paris that is so much easier said than done but if if the people that are so die hard about having court storming because 99.9 percent of the time that this happens there's not an incident or whatever um there are ways to that that this still could be executed if you're asking me what way you know I don't really need them I don't really care I'm not as impassioned about the issue as you but the sport itself and the leagues who are in control of this stuff um for the most part the SEC is is different uh uh, they, they, they clearly haven't cared enough to to make significant changes to stop it from happening because, frankly, the odds are in their favor, and they will be until, frankly, they're not. But we have one of these a year that seems to um, spark a debate when there are well over one. I mean, there are 30, 60, 90, 150 of them every single season. To your point about um, we have one of these every season, as I was searching for a column that I wrote, literally four years ago about court storming after an incident uh, following a game between Kansas and Kansas State. Um, the first tweet I found in a Twitter search was a tweet from a year ago where I tweeted, um, I wrote about court stormings three years ago. Um, here's that column. I basically feel the same way now. And then today I tweeted the same thing. I wrote about columns four years. I wrote about court stormings four years ago. Here's that column. Um, I feel basically the same way I felt um, I, I felt back then. Um, I, I will say that on Sunday, uh, I had the television on, and Dallin Cuff, who works uh, with us uh, at CBS Sports HQ, but also works at ESPN, they had him in studio um, talking about this. And he's a former college basketball player, and he said that some of his greatest, you know, best memories from playing was when you know he was a part of court stormings, you know, after they won games, and then their fans stormed the court. And so, knowing that, I, I can't sit here and say court stormings are worthless. They mean nothing to nobody because there's down a very smart guy saying, Hey, they meant something to me. I still remember them fondly all these years. So I'm not going to say they have to be banned because um, they're pointless or they're, you know, whatever, because if they clearly mean something to, to somebody, even if I, I've never, I, I've never been a part of it. So I can't 
Um, I, don't, I don't know how that feels. But if, if enough people are telling me I was a part of one and, man, it's a great memory, then I'll concede that point. Uh, I guess I'd just say um, whatever joy people get from them, it's not worth the inherent risk. These things are dangerous and have the potential to be. And you, what you hear people all the time, even today on Twitter, uh, people say, you know, first off, there's two groups of people, people who agree with me and then people who don't. And the people who agree with me say, well, what it's going to take for us to finally get rid of these is for somebody to get seriously injured. And I will point out, people have already been seriously injured. You know, uh, Jeff Eisenberg, Yahoo Sports wrote about a, a person who is paralyzed now and was paralyzed during a court storming, suffered an injury, and now is paralyzed. So we're not really waiting on somebody to get seriously injured during a court storming. That has happened. What we're waiting on is for it to happen in a high-profile game on national television, um, you know, involving Duke or something like that. That's when everybody will go, man, this is crazy. Why were we doing this? Letting uh, spectators just run freely onto a court immediately after a game before both teams or at least the visiting team is off the court. This is nuts, right? Once we get it in a high-profile game involving Duke or Kentucky or something like that, then everybody will be on the same page. But until then, for whatever reason, they're not. And so um, the people who disagree, uh, you know, the people who agree, I, whatever, but the people who disagree, it's often the same stuff. They say, listen, okay, fine. Yes, I understand there is um, the possibility for problems. You know, play, you got students running on the court. Sometimes they've been drinking. What if they push somebody? What if they say something to somebody? Um, what if the players lose their cool? Um, you know, we've had, again, people throw punches during court stormings. And, and so, like, what if that happens and it really does lead to a player being seriously hurt, a coach being seriously hurt, a student being seriously hurt. Because these students, sometimes they run on the court and they got no problem jumping around and, and mouthing off. But what if somebody's 6'6", 250, you know, who's wearing an opposing jersey just says, you know what, this ain't the day. Bam, now what are we doing? So um, just because that, that doesn't happen often doesn't mean it can't. I think even the people who are pro-court stormings can at least acknowledge that. It's just they say it doesn't happen enough to where we should take away this thing uh, forever. And I would just argue that we don't really apply that logic to too many other things. You know, here's the truth. Um, most, most people who drink and drive get home safely and, and without being arrested. I, I'd, say, I'd say the overwhelming majority of times somebody says, you know what, I've been drinking, now I'm going to drive, it actually ends up okay. But we, it doesn't make it dumb, not, not dumb, right? We still say you shouldn't do that. Because there's, there's these obviously bad things that could happen. Um, similarly, um, most teenagers who have unprotected sex do not get pregnant and do not get an STD. It's usually okay. That don't mean we'd want, we think teenagers are smart to do it. It doesn't mean it's not dumb. And so just because more often than not, when we have a court storming, something bad doesn't happen, that doesn't mean court stormings are okay. Because there is always the possibility for something bad to happen. And something bad enough happened last night, either directly or indirectly, that set the Nevada basketball team and staff into a, a bad place. And now the Mountain West Conference is trying to sort through this stuff. Simply put, um, I, I really do think they should be banned across college basketball. In no other sport do we think this is smart to let in a high emotion 
um, in a in a in a high stakes emotional game, when the opposing team loses, the home fans storm the field, or the pitch, or the rink, and jump around and act wild um, in the same small vicinity of athletes who just lost or coaches who just lost. We don't think that's smart in any other place. I don't know why we think we don't. And by the way, we don't think it's smart in the NBA. So this ain't just a basketball thing. It's a college basketball thing. And it's uh, from my from my perspective, always been nonsense. Yeah, you'd really need a coordinated effort to uh, to storm the ice because there's protective glass. So you're going to need a little buddy to buddy situation. And, and not to mention uh, the guys have, you know, blades on the bottom of their feet and it's ice so i know the grander point you're making but i'm trying to imagine in any sort of scenario uh people storming the ice that is the complete most utter disaster you've ever seen and here's what would happen you storm the ice the hockey players like they're wired to fight anyway they got sticks they yeah they they probably been throwing punches right They, they probably already been throwing punches like within the hour so you, you got to be smart about that. You know, I, th- I think the, the thing you would least want to storm would be a hockey rink. I think that's probably true. Not, I don't even think it's close, Parrish, because <laughs> of the fact they got sticks, because of the fact that their feet are literally deadly weapons. Uh, and just, yeah, for, for so many reasons. But I've actually, I don't know if I've ever heard anyone, I'm sure it's happened, but I've never heard anyone bring up the, uh, the ice hockey comparison there. And there's a very good reason why. Uh, just, my larger point is that we don't do this in other places. Why do we do this in college Well, basketball? it still does happen occasionally in college football. Not as much, but there are still field stormings there. Yeah, you know. that's, that's fair. I mean, but and, and I don't know if, if field storming is less dangerous or more dangerous than college basketball because in college football you have more people, but there's more open space. But the fact that there's more open space leads to the possibility that, frankly, more people are going to outright sprint as opposed to the arena where you're kind of just bounding down off the bleachers and kind of just, you know, getting onto the floor. So I don't know. But it's there. It's not as much in college football. Um, college football has a real danger aspect to it in, in what we've seen, people taking down goalposts and all that stuff. So, um, but w- Whatever. Uh, as for the game, real quick, um, it was it was a great game, and this is huge for Utah State. They're not a lock, but this this was a good and bad thing for the Mountain West. Nevada seed uh, line takes a huge hit. I don't think it has any shot at a four seed at this point. I think if it wins out, it takes the Mountain West crown. It's still not going to get a four seed. Um, but Utah State's now in good position here to also get a bid. Um, had Nevada won, it would have been hard pressed to do so. Probably would have needed to minimally make the the Mountain West title game. Maybe have even needed the auto bid, but that's not the case there. That's a side note to what obviously was the dominating story of the game. Uh, so let's move on. The bigger uh, and biggest game of the weekend uh, actually ended up being a blowout, same as it was two weekends ago. Um, two weekends ago, Kentucky beat Tennessee 86-69. That was inside Rupp Arena. Uh, on Saturday, Tennessee beat Kentucky 71-52 inside Thompson Bowling Arena. So the Vols and Wildcats split their two regular season games. Meantime, LSU won down at Alabama. So LSU and Tennessee are now tied atop the SEC standings. Kentucky just one game back. Uh, Norlander, I know you watched it. What did you make of Tennessee blowing out Kentucky? I didn't think they'd blow them out, but I thought they'd win. I believe I said on the podcast, I know I said on CBS Sports HQ, which I hope all of our listeners are checking into now more than ever in March, that um, 
I thought Tennessee would win comfortably and the game would not feel like Kentucky had a shot to win it in the closing minutes. That wound up being the case. I thought Grant Williams locked up SEC Player of the Year with this performance. In doing so, he'll become the first back-to-back winner of that award in that conference since big old Corliss Williamson at Arkansas in 94-95. Teammate of Scotty Thurman, who GP has a strong affinity for. Um, but Kentucky, uh, listen, I... The fact that we've had these kind of games, I think that between the two now, Tennessee is two up in the point differential. Uh, it's fascinating because, you know, if you would talk to anyone who follows college basketball 10 minutes before the first game tipped and said, you know, what do you think is going to happen in these next two games? You know, no one would have thought, you know what, they're both going to be blowouts and each of the home team is going to win easily, you know, in north of 15 points. But that's, in fact, what we got. And to me, it makes me want to see a third matchup all the more in the SEC tournament because, you know, maybe maybe a neutral court will give us a, a balanced game. I'm obviously aware of the fact that Reed Travis did not play in this game. I thought that was a big impact because of how good Williams was. Jordan Bowen, though, awesome, 27 points and really reestablished himself as, in my opinion, borderline top five point guard in terms of value and impact this season in college basketball. Good win for Tennessee. Those are my broad thoughts. No way am I selling stock on Kentucky. Tennessee now leaps to the one line, by the way. Kentucky now down to the two. LSU, meanwhile, gets a win, and they're still tied with Tennessee atop the uh, the standings, and they're firmly at two as well, in my opinion. Um, but I know you got thoughts on the Vols. What else is on your mind with this game, GP? Well, sort of the thing I wrote on Saturday afternoon is that, you know, after Tennessee just got run off the court, as Grant Williams put it, humbled at Rupp Arena, um, there were so many people, and I'm not talking about anybody specifically, but just people in general. I'm not even talking about college basketball analysts or, or columnists. I'm just talking about like basketball fans. Um, they, they started to like really question Tennessee. Um, you know, like, ah, see, that team hadn't played a ranked team in, in two more than two months. And, you know, you see what happens when they finally have to step on the court with a good team again. They got ran off the court. And I was just like, what? I mean, like, it, undeniably, they got run off the court. But, you know, heading into this past Saturday's game with Kentucky, Tennessee was 25-3. and three, And the only losses on the resume was a neutral court loss in overtime to full-strength Kansas, not current-form Kansas, full-strength Kansas, um, the blowout loss at Kentucky, and the the overtime loss at LSU. And yes, I know Tremont Waters didn't play, but still, uh, an, you know, an overtime loss to a top-15 team. So the, the resume is perfect except for overtime loss to a top-15 team, overtime loss to another top-15 team, and then, yeah, 86-69 loss to Kentucky. What is so bad about that? Like, what may, that's like still got them in one seed conversation. And I think after the win over Kentucky, at least according to um, Jerry Palm right now, and I would agree with him because I have Tennessee fourth in the top 25 and one, Tennessee would be a number one seed in the NCAA tournament right now. And so I just didn't understand why everybody had these big questions about Tennessee after the loss at Kentucky, as opposed to just doing really what it is I did, which is just say, hey, you know, uh, Tennessee's, re- I mean, Kentucky's really good. And when really good teams go on the road to play other really good teams, sometimes this can happen. You know, it's we've you know name the team in the country that hasn't been exposed on the road so far this season. I mean, maybe Virginia, maybe Duke at full strength, but outside of that, I mean, that's 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 almost it, and that might be it. And so, it was funny after I tried to make these points about Tennessee following the blowout loss at Kentucky. 
I had a whole bunch of people, some of whom were Kentucky fans, saying, oh, you know, Parrish loves Tennessee so much, um, he won't even acknowledge that they're fraudulent after uh, they got run off the court when they played the first ranked team they played in two months. And I just said, you know, I, I really didn't say much. I wasn't arguing with anybody, but, like, I just thought, like, I don't – I still think Tennessee's really, really good. You know, even the Monday after that blowout loss, I was on radio somewhere, and somebody asked me, so does that change your mind about Tennessee? I said, what changes my ranking of Tennessee? Because you have to, you know, you have to adjust accordingly. But it, no, it doesn't really change my opinion about Tennessee. I still think Tennessee is one of the very best teams in the country. I still think Tennessee can win the SEC. I still think Tennessee can go to a Final Four. I still think Tennessee can win a national championship. And so after this game, I sort of did the same thing with Kentucky. I, I just, like, it does, like, what happened Saturday doesn't really make me think any. The way I thought about Kentucky on Saturday morning, I went to bed Saturday night still thinking the same way about Kentucky, even though I had just watched them um, lose by you know, 19 points at Tennessee. Again, sometimes when really good teams go on the road to play other really good teams, this is the type of thing that can happen. Simply put, uh, here's where I'm at. Tennessee is so good that it can blow out Kentucky at home. And Kentucky is so good that it's capable of blowing out Tennessee at home. And guess what? Tennessee and Kentucky are both capable of doing that to just about anybody in the country. There might be a few exceptions, but just about anybody in the country is at risk of getting run off the court at Thompson Bowling or at Rupp Arena. Um, Those are two of the best six or seven, eight teams in the country. And if both of them end up in the Final Four, that won't be the craziest thing in the world to me. Nope, not at all. Um, I don't want to say this is unique to college basketball fandom because I don't think it is but there is a bizarre inclination for some fans to want to uh, denigrate other teams when they feel as though that the schedule they have played is not up to their lofty standards we're going to get to Gonzaga in a little bit here Gonzaga is the prime example of this we are still seeing this again this season which is idiocy because there are multiple predictive metrics that take into account adjusted margins it actually takes into account the fact that teams that are playing in lesser leagues how they would match up against the rest of the sport using data from throughout the season nevertheless it happened with Tennessee um, obviously shut up the the vol doubters to a certain extent we'll see what happens in the SEC tournament but there's no doubt they've been a top 10 team from the start of the season until now that's still the case and by the way I loved Schofield trying to slam home that Woo! dunk he didn't get perish. He didn't get it off in time, but I again what we said heading into the game. They, you know, the Tennessee guys, they they work themselves into a lather over this, and maybe they'll do the same for Kentucky. Give us this matchup again, please. SEC tournament, fine. Really though, if we can somehow have these teams meet in the Final Four, I would be all for it because I think they are very interesting matchups for each other. And Kentucky is going to remember what Schofield tried to pull off there. He didn't get it off in time. I have. I can't tell you how much of a non-issue I have with him doing that, by the way. And I hope Rick Barnes uh, is the same. Who knows? But I had to, I had to mention that as well because um, it was just you know, a junk play last, last second of the game, and he sent a message there. So hopefully this was not the final meeting between these two in 2019. I saw some people tweeting that, man, I hope these two play in the SEC tournament final. Um, and LSU must be sitting over there like, hey, <laughs> what about us? Because if this thing plays out the way – um, at least Ken Palm projects it to. Uh, Tennessee and LSU are going to share the SEC title, but because LSU is 1-0 and against Tennessee, I believe this is right, 
LSU would be the one seed in the SEC tournament. Yes. Tennessee the two, Kentucky the three. So if they play again, it, it's more likely to be in the SEC tournament semifinal as opposed to the SEC tournament final. Um, I'm not sure if most people realize that. Yeah, uh, LSU is sitting very well here. I don't know uh, in the semifinal, fine, like whatever, just get, have them have them meet up again. Um, I don't know if LSU has a shot here at the one. I suspect that it does if it can win out. Now, what I am interested to see is this. Let's say Kentucky and Tennessee don't lose again until or if they meet in the SEC tournament. Uh, and let's say that LSU doesn't lose again, if at all, or maybe in the title game against one of those two teams. John Calipari has made a an annual habit of, of needling the selection committee and saying, it's obvious to me that performance in the SEC tournament, particularly on the final day, has no bearing on where we get seeded. I think in some years he's had a point, in other years he hasn't, but he says this more often than not. I think this is going to be a real test this season because you have three uh, bona fide Final Four contenders. I know, you know, if we want to take it to another level and say national championship contenders with LSU, I think some people won't buy that. Regardless, LSU is trending as a top 10 team, and I think you have to put them in that conversation right now. I will be intrigued to see how each of these teams get seeded, and let's say if LSU wins the SEC tournament, like let's say they don't lose again, Parrish. In a vacuum, again, in a vacuum, I think that LSU would have a real case to be a one seed in that situation. And if they didn't, Calipari's criticisms from past years might well be applied because I'd have a hard time looking at all that LSU has done and taking into account the fact that it would have, gosh, GP, at least four more, maybe five more quad one wins, some nice top tier ones in that, in that, uh, in that scenario. So that's just, you know, put it to the side. Let's think about that. We're obviously two weeks from Selection Sunday doing this pod. I am so freaking ready. Um, but I'm, intri- I'm intrigued to see how these three teams get treated by the committee because it does seem like because the SEC tournament ends on Sunday, among some other ones, don't get me wrong, um, Calipari has had some validity to his criticism there. It's the one thing I agree with John on because um, he's, he's got all these theories about the Selection Committee and the NCAA tournament in general. All of them, of course, tilted against him and his program. And by the way, this dates back to forever. It ain't something he picked up at Kentucky. He did this at Memphis as well. Um, the one thing I do think he's he's at least partly right on is that they don't seem to take into account what happens on Sunday that often. Um, because sometimes things that will happen on Sunday um, are surprising, and you go, ooh, well, this is going to change that. And you look up, and it really didn't change anything. Uh, so I, I think there is some validity to that. Where he's often wrong, always wrong, is when he acts like, you know, the committee made it too tough for us. Because the committee I, 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 and actually has no incentive whatsoever to make it, quote, too tough or tougher than it should be on Kentucky. There is nothing the NCAA would rather have than Kentucky advancing de- as deep into that bracket as they can. There is nothing our bosses would rather have. Then Kentucky, if Kentucky could be two, if they could make Kentucky two Final Four teams, Kentucky is awesome for business. Like if you want to see my bosses, um, you know, have a firework display, get, let's get Kentucky and Duke in a national championship. Kentucky, game. Duke, Carolina, and either Kansas or UCLA as the fourth team in the Final Four is the dream. Yep. Yeah, I like to, like this thing will never be rigged against Kentucky. Everybody, everybody benefits from Kentucky being around as long as possible. So he's always wrong about that. But um, one of the things he is right on, I, at least I think, it's been my perception as well, is that stuff that does, happens on Sunday doesn't seem to matter as much as stuff that happens on Saturday and Friday and Thursday and any day prior. I'm glad you brought up 
LSU as a possible number one seed. Because I really haven't heard anybody talk about that. And the resume's there. You know, I, I noticed it when I was updating the top 25 and one on, I guess, Saturday or Sunday, one of the days. Um, they got, they're they 9-2 and two in Quadrant 1 opportunities. 16-5 and five in Q1 slash Q2 opportunities. So there is absolutely a scenario where LSU gets a one seed in the NCAA tournament. I, I'm not sure they'll get it. It obviously involves them closing strongly and probably uh, winning the SEC tournament. So they just might not do that. But if they do enough this week to be at least co-SEC champs and and then win the SEC tournament, I would think that they're in the conversation for for a, a one seed, which is um, you know remarkable because they started this season outside of the top 20 in the AP poll. Um, they've obviously missed Tremont Waters for a few games. They dealt with a tragedy in the preseason. And, um, you know, it was down in Orlando in November. They got run off the court by an Oklahoma State team that's like at near the bottom of the Big 12. And yet, despite all of that, they're, you know, as of March 3rd, they're in, they're in, they've got a real shot to get a one seed in the NCAA tournament. So Will Wade obviously doing a, a great job in, in, in Baton Rouge. Before we move on, uh, let me address something on Twitter about Tennessee because I've never addressed it uh, on Twitter. Um, because the character limit just makes it difficult to address on Twitter, but I can address it uh, here. Um, and it, what it is is something uh, about Tennessee, uh, something I tweeted back in 2016. So g- give me a few minutes here and let me explain. Uh, because, Norlander, I'm confident you don't even know what I'm talking about. I have no and, idea what you're about to say, Parrish. So. Okay. So um, basically every time something good happens for Tennessee, like when it beats Kentucky – or gets a commitment from a five-star prospect, some UT fans retweet a back-and-forth between me and Pat Forty um, from Yahoo Sports, a back-and-forth from January 2016. And what they think um, they're doing is making some brilliant point when they do it, but but they're not. So if you're um, one of the people who does this, uh, pay attention, and let me walk you through the context of those tweets so that you hopefully can can be uh, smarter. And because most of you listening, um, like Norlander, probably have no idea what I'm even talking about, I'll just, I'll just start from the beginning. So rewind a few years. It's January 31st, 2016. And California, um, which is coached at the time by Conzo Martin, the former Tennessee coach, had just lost on that day to Colorado. Now, never mind that Conzo was in the middle of a season in which he would take Cal to the NCAA tournament in just his second year on campus. Regardless of that fact, UT fans, not all, not all, but some would tweet people like me and Pat Forty literally each time Conzo lost a game because we'd both written about or talked about how Tennessee fans and prominent Tennessee boosters uh, ran Conzo off. So every time Conzo would lose a game, they'd tweet us. It was a strange obsession. And then finally, after this loss on January 31st, 2016, Pat responded. And here's what he tweeted. He wrote, uh, quote, To Tennessee trolls who pop up every time Conzo Martin loses a game at Cal, your record is 26-27 and 27 since he left, and you just lost to TCU. So I saw that, and then I replied to him. I was like, it's bizarre. They act like they ran off Conzo Martin to hire John Calipari and like they've been stringing wins ever since. And those tweets – are still alive today. You can find them whenever you want. So now, every time something good happens at Tennessee, and a whole bunch of good stuff's been happening at Tennessee, these same people tweet back at us as if anything I or Pat tweeted 
on January 31st, 2016 was incorrect. It's like another weird, strange obsession. So let me explain to the dummies um, what they're missing. And if you're one of the dummies, like, please, I beg you, pay attention. First, you didn't run off Conzo Martin to hire the coach you have now, who is doing great things now. Like, you realize that, don't you? You didn't run off Conzo Martin to hire Rick Barnes. You ran off Conzo Martin and then hired Donnie Tindall, who was fired a year later. Don't ever forget that. Secondly, the timing of the tweet and the context matter. So let's go back again to January 31st, 2016. Rick Barnes, on that day, was 10-11 and 11 in his first season on the job. This came a year after Donnie Tindall went 16-16, and 16, so you can do the math on that. Like Pat tweeted, Tennessee was 26-27 on that day since running off Conzo Martin. And Tennessee was on its way to what would be a 15-19 and 19 season, and Tennessee had secured exactly zero top 100 prospects under Rick Barnes at that moment. Meantime, Conzo was on his way to the NCAA tournament and had enrolled two five-star prospects at Cal. And these maniacs are mocking Conzo Martin after each loss. I mean, you can't overstate how dumb he were. And that's the only point I and Pat were making at that time. Your program was in a bad place at that time. You were about to finish without a winning record for the second straight year, and there was nothing happening in recruiting to make anybody think good stuff was on the way, which is why the team went 16-16 and the following season and was picked 13th in the preseason SEC poll last season. That, there's only 14 teams in the SEC, by the way. And Tennessee last season was picked 13th after going 16-16 and the year before, 15-19 and the year before that. Now, that Rick Barnes has somehow, that Rick Barnes somehow took last season's team that was picked 13th in the SEC and turned it into an SEC champion is amazing. That the Vols would be a number one seed if the NCAA tournament started today is incredible. That Rick has used this success to secure commitments from two five-star prospects who are on their way is awesome. If you're a Tennessee fan, you should be thrilled. And I'm thrilled for you. And I'm thrilled for Rick because it's unbelievable work. But none of that means you weren't stupid to spend January 31st, 2016 mocking Conzo Martin. And none of that means me rolling my eyes at you on January 31st, 2016 wasn't warranted. So if you're one of the people who still loves to retweet that sequence, like, do your thing. I, I, I promise I don't care as much as it probably seems right now. <laughs> but just understand it does not make you look smart or make me look dumb. It does not do what you think it's doing. It doesn't mean what you think it means. And I know you smart Tennessee fans understand that, and I appreciate you. I, I sincerely hope your Vols go to the Final Four because it would be an awesome story. And also, don't ever forget, I'm the first dude who was ranking Tennessee number one this season. I, I'm ride or die for these Vols. I might as well live on Rocky Top right now. And I know you smart Tennessee fans realize as much. I ain't mad at you. You're not the target of this. Only the dumb Tennessee fans are the target of this. So please, if you're a smart Tennessee fan, forward this segment to a dumb Tennessee fan and make them listen to it because I'd like for all of us to be on the same page by the time the SEC tournament gets started. Go Vols. Two schools finished their regular seasons with undefeated conference records on Saturday. We're going to talk about that next. But first, check this out. The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. 
The Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third-row seating, available dual wireless charging pads. You've got the H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on those dirt trails and kick up some mud. Or the third-row seating gets your whole family in to experience the thrill together. The dual wireless charging pads make sure that no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead cell phone. Think about those adventurous activities you can do, like me taking a ski trip up with the family, maybe going on a camping expedition, anything and everything. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Are you looking for a new basketball shoe? If so, this is Gary Parrish here to tell you that the New Balance 2-Way V4 features the groundbreaking use of fuel cell technology with fresh foam creating the ultimate combination of rebound and cushioning. Every step feels explosive and dynamic, and the upper construction features a lightweight textile that's supportive and breathable. So whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the 2-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the 2-Way at newbalance.com. So two schools finished their regular seasons with undefeated conference records on Sunday. One was Gonzaga. The other was, drum roll please, Wofford. So let's take them in that order. Gonzaga beat St. Mary's 69-55. So the Zags finished the regular season 29-2. Their only two losses are away from home losses to teams I have in the top five of the top 25 and one, specifically Tennessee and North Carolina. They went 16-0 in the WCC. They won all 16 games by double digits and by an average of 26.4 points. They've won 20 straight games by an average of 29.9 points, and their adjusted efficiency margin now sits at 35.01, which is 2.96 points better than the adjusted efficiency margin the Zags posted two years ago when they advanced to the title game of the 2017 NCAA tournament, and 1.25 points better than the adjusted efficiency margin Villanova posted last season when it won the 2018 NCAA tournament. Now, we've spent a lot of time on the Zags this season and recently, so I don't know what else there is to say about them other than that they're undeniably awesome and real title contenders. Great resume, great computer numbers. If you're skeptical of them, you're an idiot. So with that, let's just move on to Matt Norlander's Wofford Terriers. They won at Sanford on Saturday and proved to 18-0 in the Southern Conference. Twelve of those 18 wins are double-digit wins, and I now have them 23rd in the top 25 and one, which is just remarkable considering they started the season ranked 121st at Kenpon. They're now 22nd at Kimpon. Norlander, the floor is yours. Enjoy your moment. 15th in the net are the Wofford Terriers. Last time an undefeated team came out of the SoCon, a dude named Curry got that Davidson Wildcat squad to the Elite Eight. GP, you have had some amazingly long segments in podcast history. I don't know if what you just did is the longest, but you rolled. I mean, that felt like 12, 13 consecutive minutes, so it feels good to talk again. But guess what? We're both going to get a break because, as promised on the previous podcast, we're going to take a little bit of a step back in time. Kick your feet back up. Give it a listen. This is November 11th, 2018. (laughs) Some of it has been edited for the sake uh, of clarity and, frankly, timeliness. So let's let's roll the dream sequence, please. I just want to – you had mentioned on a uh, few podcasts back a shout to Roy for, for opening up against Wofford. Yes, I just – they played the games. They won both. They won both by double digits. These are two road wins that, frankly, Wofford probably is going to get to the NCAA tournament, and Elon's not – like, it'll probably be a quad two. Like, Wofford could be a quad one. Elon's probably going to be a quad two. Maybe. Maybe it's a quad three. And even still, it's a non-conference road win. 
This is why, and I'm not trying to get super hot takey parish or anything, but I think Virginia, I, I think, this is my preseason prediction, I'm going to stick with this, I think Virginia will win the ACC this season, and by the way, Duke and Virginia play each other twice. I think Virginia will win the ACC. I think North Carolina is going to give Duke a solid push, and if Duke and North Carolina split, it could come back to this in terms of where they might land on sea lines. Maybe they wind up with the same seed parish, but someone remember this conversation. Hell, maybe Carolina loses nine games and we're not even it's not even a thing. But if they're close, remember this. Duke does not play a road game of any sort for the first time until January 8th. They are the last team in college basketball who will have to go on the road and play in a true road environment this entire season. They don't have a non-conference road game at all. North Carolina, meanwhile... Will has these two. It will play at Michigan, a national championship finalist from 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 a season ago, and then it still has Texas and Kentucky on a neutral. When you add up all that North Carolina is going to have, it's I think it's going to be right there, and it's why Duke has been awesome, but it better stay awesome because I can very well see a situation where those three teams are vying for the one line, the two line, and maybe one just gets squeaked out under the three. Roy Williams did this. He challenged himself and his program. They got both wins. I think it's going to pay off in a major way down the road. Out of your mind. <laughs> it's, I love that Roy did this, but like those wins don't matter. Sure they it's, do. Oh, they will absolutely matter. Who's sub-100 wins? That's what They're they not going to be sub-100 wins. One's going to be a quad one. The other one's going to be a quad two. I guarantee you when we get to February and March I mean, and we're analyzing these resumes, Parrish, and Carolina has these road wins and these non-conference road wins, they're absolutely going to have um, they're going to have a, a, a cumulative effect toward them getting a one or a two seed. They will absolutely matter. Yes. Offered is right now 118th at Ken Palm. Elon's 221. How are they going to improve drastically? If Wofford is by far the best team in its league, and it probably will, it has a chance at cracking the top 100. It's going to be a quad one win. I'm just telling you, it will be, and that will have an impact. One One through 75. Yeah, going on. You think Wofford's going to get in the top 75? I think they've got a shot. I do, and for a quad one, yeah, or it'll be a high end quad two. It does have a shot. I do think so. Yes. Okay, let's go through it. Wofford, this season right now 118. Last year 163. Year before that, 142. Year before that, 187. Year before that, 96. Year before that, 192. Year before that, 246. Year before that, 197. Year before that, 84. Year before that, 82. Year before that, 222. Year before that, 203. Year before that, 249. Year before that, 251. Year before that, 223. Year before that, 287. Year before that, 200. And I'm now in the first year of Ken Palm, 2002, 244. So you're sitting there on the podcast guaranteeing me that Wofford's going to do something it's literally never done before. I, one, you're great at reading Ken Palm rankings. We've established that. Two, the c- committee will not be using Ken Palm rankings. It will be using the NET. I can almost guarantee you Wofford will be higher in the NET than it will at Ken Palm. And three, none of those Wofford teams are going to be as good as this one. Four, I never said guarantee. I said it's likely that it can happen. You, you actually said, I'm going to guarantee right now that it'll be a quad one win. I might have been out of my mind because I have Rams defense and fantasy football and just scored a touchdown. <laughs> you did say that. You said, I guarantee. I, I think you did. People can I don't think it. I did, but if I did, I'll own it. I don't, I'm not going to guarantee their top 75, but yeah, I think they've got a shot. These games don't matter. Winning, winning at Wofford is fun. Winning at Elon is fun. They don't, those games do not matter. Those games don't matter to your resume unless you lose them. 
No, it will matter. I mean, we, we just disagree on this. It will absolutely matter. When you have when when total road wins and non-conference road wins actually factor heavily into how you get seeding, the, they matter. Like, they just do. You can say they don't, but they absolutely do, and the selection committee will take them into account. They, they do matter. I mean, you can say they don't, but they absolutely will. I'm going to say that on Selection Sunday, we're not discussing Carolina as a one seed, two seed, three seed, whatever, and going, you got to remember what they did early. They got that Watford win and that Elon win. That's not going to be Okay, then you can't. When we talk about them, then you cannot cite how many non-conference road wins or how many road wins they have unless you include both of those because they will matter to the total that they have, and that will have an impact. They will have more road wins than Duke, and that will have an absolute impact on where they get seated and why I think they will have a chance to usurp Duke if their records are relatively equal and the team split in the regular season. Let me make sure I got this right. You think if North Carolina and Duke's resumes are similar on Selection Sunday, the tipping point will be wins at Wofford and Elon. That's what you think. I think the tipping point could be non-conference road performance, in which case, yes, North Carolina would have the edge on them. Hey, by the way, you want to go back to our West Virginia conversation? No, you got that one right. This is idiotic okay. what you're saying. Okay. You like I I where you where you and I agree is that it is awesome that Roy Williams is willing to go on the road and play these games to start the season to take the Tar Heels into uh Wofford and into Elon. Like that's that's awesome. The idea that they those wins are going to be difference makers is like bananas. Okay. We'll talk in March, my friend. I can't, I can't wait to talk in March, my friend. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> that, was, that was amazing. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to post-produce the amount of dings for all of the predictions I had right. Let's also note, first of all, welcome. This is March. This is, this is this might be my favorite episode of the season so far. Right now, Duke has seven road wins to UNC's 10, and I would firmly argue that Carolina, which still has a shot at the one line, owes its road performance to its placement. It's 7th in the net. As I said, Wofford is 15th in the net. It is ranked higher than uh, than it is in Ken Palm. I'll also own. I didn't get that all right. Man, I am so I'm so ticked off at myself in retrospect, Parrish. I wish I had completely owned the guarantee because as I listened back to it, I did guarantee it. Then you <laughs> called me out for my guarantee, and I hedged. I wish I hadn't. I remember watching the Rams on Sunday Night Football when we went down with all that. But um, I wasn't completely correct on Elon. But this really has become one of the just incredible transgressions in the history of the podcast and – it, there was there was more, by the way, but I had to cut it out. We couldn't like replay an entire like 10, 11-minute segment, but I had to give the good stuff there. And so here we are, Wofford Terriers. What you got to say now, my friend? Dude, I can't do anything except I could not have been more wrong and you could not have been more right. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing. Listen, I had never listened back to that, not once. Um, and like I was actually – I had my mic muted during it, but I, there were like three LOL moments. Because I was like, hold up, let me get this straight. <laughs> I, was, I was so getting, I was so anxious to get you on the record about this stupid Wofford stuff, and like Wofford is what fifteenth in the net right now. Yes. I mean, get out of my face with this. <laughs> you. You were like, they'll be top seventy-five. They'll be higher in the net than Kim Palm. Um, it's it's going to allow them to have more road wins than Duke. They're going to be for uh number one seed this year i was like did you hear me i was like are you telling me we're gonna be sitting around in march talking about north carolina's wofford win 
And, like, here we are literally in March talking about North Carolina's Wofford win. Also had Virginia winning the ACC when that was not by any means the trendy thought. Um, had all three of these teams vying for the one and two, maybe the three line. Uh, I'll just – I'll dine out on this for a little bit because, obviously, when the tournament comes and we have to make these predictions, I'll flame out. But uh, – this has just been incredible. <laughs> this has been incredible. And by the way, just Wofford, generally speaking, you know, they, their tournament's upcoming here this week. Um, I I think I'm fascinated by what they're gonna how they're gonna be handled here uh, because the four main the four biggest opponents they've played they've lost to, but they've dominated the competition. They're top four in margin of victory in the entire sport at this point. 26 and 4 overall, 23 and 4 against D1 competition. So three wins that they have will not actually be factored in when the committee evaluates them. But they rolled roughshod over a SOCON that ranks as a top 12 conference this season. It's the best year, arguably, in SOCON history. The losses UNC. Oklahoma, Kansas, Mississippi State. We joked about what it could do to UNC. Frankly, Wofford's doing heavy lifting for Oklahoma, bubble team supreme, um, potentially Kansas and what it's doing on the C-line, and Mississippi State. And there's just no doubt about it. It is actually uh, it has done work elsewhere. So I think that if Wofford wins out, it's deserving of a six. I think it's absolute floor, and I mean floor. I would be honestly shocked shocked even if it lost its first game which it won't if it was anything worse than a nine I think it's guaranteed to be a single digit seed um, I'd be lovingly surprised if the committee went as high as five but I just don't see that happening when the four biggest opponents I know it's got a road win in South Carolina which is no small thing but the four best teams in theory that has played Miss State uh, Kansas Oklahoma and UNC they were all losses so fascinating resume but Wofford timed this well because they do it in a year in which the net rankings debut and now they're set up beautifully to be seated as well as anyone not from a major conference not named Gonzaga. And I'm not even convinced Nevada at this point. And then we'll wait and see where Buffalo lands. Keep in mind, Mississippi State, Auburn, and Ole Miss all lost at South Carolina. Wofford didn't. I mean, that's, that's not worth nothing. Um, if you'll allow me to defend myself, here's the way I would defend myself. And I, I referenced this last week. Um, and when I, and I, I think that my my bottom line was it, it it's I think it's often more important to sound smart in real time than to look smart um, with the benefit of hindsight. And all I was doing there was pointing out that you were expecting Wofford to do something that, and I know we were using the net for the first time, so there was no reference point. But I, I think as we look up on March third, the net and Kimpom line up fairly closely. Um, I, you know, like. It's, there's not this one team at Kimpom right. that's like in the top 20 and, and not even in the top 50 in the net. They, they're, they're lining up pretty closely. And so the reason I was referencing Kimpom is because I did, I did assume that there wouldn't be a vast difference between the net and Kimpom. Um, and plus, there's no, we had nothing to reference as, as it relates to the net. But my, my larger point was what you were guaranteeing was that Wofford was going to become something it had literally never been, which is a top 75 team. And keep in mind, at the time we're having this discussion, they're 118th at Kenpa. Like the idea that they went from 118th to 15th is bananas. <laughs> I mean, that that does not happen. Um, it, they, or I guess in Kenpa, it's 118 to, to 23. But they went from wherever they started in the net to, to, to 15. That's yeah. crazy. And so the only reason I was, like, putting my foot down is because I, this is, like, simply put, this is all I was saying. I, I'm just going to assume that the thing Wofford's um, always done 
which is finish outside of the top 75. I'm just going to assume they're going to do that again, finish outside of the top 75. I could not have been wronger, but that's what my opinion was rooted in. Like, you're saying Wofford's going to do something it's never done. I'm going to say, no, nah, I'm going to assume it, they're going to uh, they're going to not do that. Um, that. Like it'd be it'd be like if we had a conversation right now, if we were talking about this week's Duke Wake Forest game, right? And we were like, okay, so it's Duke Wake Forest last game at Cameron. Is Zion going to play or not play? And then we'd get into maybe the game a little bit or probably not. And and but like imagine if you said this. Listen, GP, I think uh, uh, Duke is just going to handle Wake Forest no problem. And the way they're going to do it is they're going to just destroy Wake from the three-point line. I mean, that's what's going to happen. They're just going to absolutely bury him from the three-point line because that's what Duke does. And I would say, Norlander, that's not what Duke does. Like, Duke Duke is shooting 30.8% from three-point range. They only shoot 24 threes a game, so they only make like 7.5 per game. And now you're just sitting here assuming Duke's going to kill Wake from the three-point line, even though Duke never kills anybody from the three-point line except for that one time against Virginia? That's all I was doing with the Wofford thing. Like, that's not something that ever happened. So, so why are you so sure it's going to happen? But, like, clearly, you were right, and you were more right than you even knew. Crazy. Just don't doubt me from here on out when I, when I say this thing. West Virginia to Wofford. It's, uh... Oh, well, the great thing was you had the West Virginia thing in that clip, too. I know. I know. Just incredible. <laughs> um... No, that, uh, thanks for indulging on, on my end. We had a few listeners that wanted that as well, so there you no, go. That is just listen, too much, that was man. great. Even though I'm on the wrong end of it, that, like, that's amazing audio. <laughs> like, it, it, it actually made me laugh out because I was so – it was one of those moments, and I have these moments every once in a while where somebody says something to me that I just find so outlandish. And I'm like, what? Like, and, and, and so the rest of the conversation is me just uh, 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 exasperated at the idea that you could really think what you're thinking. Like, how are you? How could you be so sure of this? I'm giving you the data, Norlander. They're 118th right now. They've never been top 75. And now you're over here stroking yourself to Wofford's uh, resume. What are you talking about? And, like, them dudes are ranked 15th in the net right now. It's crazy. <laughs> it is It is an awesome moment. Um, all right. Uh, other results we, de- we did mention on the previous podcast. We get to some bubble stuff. You want to run down the ones that stood out to you? Let's, let's at least give <laughs> listeners an idea of, of what happened and how things are shaking here because we're on the, on the doorstep of the end of the regular season in big conferences and then in small leagues. There are many playoff brackets that have already been established. It really does make this time of the year fun, the bubble talk. And it's why I'm against expansion. Like, I didn't want them to go from 64 to 68, but I sure as hell don't want them to go 68 to 90, whatever. Mm. Because it's fun to have these conversations about not great teams, because if you're on the bubble, you're not great. But, like, interesting teams. For instance, I sat around and, um, you know, I had to go pick up Mexican food for the family, right? I called in a pickup uh, thing. And and I was I was like, oh, well, Kelly was like, I thought the food was going to be ready 20 minutes ago. What are you doing? I'm like, I'm watching Georgetown Seton Hall. They're in double <laughs> overtime. Let me, let me finish watching Georgetown Seton Hall, then I'll go get the food, right? So these kinds of things can draw you in. And so there's a whole list of, like, interesting games that don't involve ranked teams necessarily, but they're interesting because you really do got these teams. And in some cases, these coaches fighting for their careers, like, in real games that might determine – whether they're in an NCAA tournament or not, whether they keep their job or not. One of them was Georgetown beating Seton Hall in double overtime. Now, Jerry Palm has Seton Hall um, as his next to last team in the field as of Sunday morning. So uh, Saturday night didn't help him. 
And he has Georgetown as one of the first four out. So Saturday night got Georgetown, the Hoyas, which, by the way, I just think would be awesome to have Pat Ewing in Georgetown, that big brand. Those two things that are, I mean, synonymous with, you, with each other. When you think of Georgetown, you think of Patrick Ewing. At least I do because one of my first sports memories is Patrick Ewing being a monster um, in college basketball. So um, they're now one of the first four out, according to Jerry. Beyond that, Texas beat Iowa State. Just a huge win for Shaka Smart. Jerry Palm now has the Longhorn in the first four. Clemson missed a huge opportunity against North Carolina, lost by two points. Jerry now has the Tigers as the last team in the field. St. Mary's obviously missed an opportunity against Gonzaga. Jerry has the Gales among the first four out. UCF helped itself tremendously, win at Houston that snapped Houston's 33-game home winning streak. Jerry now has the Golden Knights up to a nine seed. Indiana got back uh, into the at-large conversation, I guess, with another win over Michigan State. Utah State is up to a nine seed, thanks to that previously mentioned win over Nevada. TCU missed an opportunity, lost at Texas Tech, lost to Texas Tech at home. Horn Frogs are now a ten seed, according to Jerry Palm. Butler missed an opportunity. They're playing at Villanova. Palm has them out of the field right now, and St. John's took a loss at DePaul on Sunday. That's not ideal. Norlander, what from that list or any other bubble-related stuff, what stands out to you from the weekend? Yeah, I'll try and roll through these pretty quick here. I'll mention the ones you mentioned first and then throw a few others. Uh, Georgetown slash the Big East in general. The league is a complete – we don't need to go back into the Big East the way we've done the previous podcast, but the, in, in super depth here, but the league is a complete quagmire, like a, a disaster and not in a good way here because you've got Marquette losing on Sunday to Creighton. And in the process, here's how it shakes out. Nova – and Marquette are now tied atop the standings. Xavier, Georgetown, eight losses. St. John's, nine losses. Creighton, nine losses. Seton Hall, nine losses. And then Butler, Providence, and DePaul all have ten losses in the league. I'll be covering the Big East in person for uh, for CBSSports.com and CBS Sports HQ. It does feel like it's a bit of a of a, of a jump ball. Like, I don't feel like Villanova or Marquette anymore. Like, they're probably one of those two teams are going to win. But the league now only has two surefire NCAA tournament teams. And Marquette's lost its grip on or hopes of even getting a two in my estimation. And so things are getting jumbled there. Great for Georgetown. I think this was the weekend where people started to realize they actually have it within their grasp. They have it within their reach. So they've got a shot. St. John's can't help itself. It can't get out of its own way. I still think it's going to get in, but it's got a very tricky resume if you get into it. And as we get, uh, no, let's get a few more games in for the teams that really start to be really polarizing. We'll dissect. I'm not going to break down every team's resume here on the on the pod, but take a look at the St. John's resume. Take a look at the Creighton resume with how it is. I think the Big East is destined. Here's another prediction. Hold me to it. I think the Big East is destined here to get three two or three teams that are in the field and they're in Dayton or they are clearly just barely missing Dayton and then they'll have two maybe even three teams that just miss and are in the first six out it's such a clog there and they keep they keep you know just it's like the uh What's the Brad Pitt movie where the, all the the people that are like eating themselves are like climbing up the wall? You know what I'm talking about? I do, but I don't remember what it was. I have called. no idea. Oh, it's it was based on that book. I can't remember right now. I'm on a roll. But yeah, that's basically what the Big East right now. There's a visual for you. Clemson is brutal. They've had five losses. You noted this on Twitter. Five losses this season by two or one point. They the difference between Clemson 
easily being in the field and now being on the outside looking in is less than 10 points. It's rough go right now for Brad Brownell's team. Again, they still do have opportunities. Let's wait and see what they do there. UCF gets one of the five most impressive wins of the season statistically according to KPI. KPI is one of the metrics the committee uses on his team sheets. Winning at Houston, that not only eliminated Houston's chances, although they were faint, but still now they're completely gone of getting a one seed. UCF is close. I wouldn't put him, they're not a lock for the field. Palm has him in. I still think they have work to do. The bottom half of their resume, they've got a lot of quad three and quad four. That's not great. Indiana, I don't know what you want me to say. Let's just see if they win again because they've got the weirdest resume I think I've ever seen, and I don't say that lightly. I've never seen a team accumulate this many losses, look this bad for 75 85% of the season, and yet it's got wins that will outflank at the top of it any other team that is fighting to get into the field. Great on Archie Miller for sweeping Michigan State. I actually think that will cost Michigan State any chance of getting a one seed. Jerry Palm agrees with me on that. We talked about that on HQ. You mentioned TCU. Yes, it's slipping. Oklahoma, meanwhile, gets a win. It's still in decent standing, I think, but they're weird because they got a bad league resume. People are going to be focusing on league record. Reminder, how you finish in your league from a record standpoint has zero impact, as it should, on getting into the tournament. A few more. Temple got a win on Sunday. Temple, I think, is closer than people realize, and because of that, the American had a really good weekend because I don't know if it's going to get four in, but Temple's really knocking on the door there. We started with Wofford. Furman also won. I think it's a more realistic at-large candidate than people want to give it credit for, so it's close. I'm not big on St. Mary's personally. Now, the numbers are helping them, but I've watched them play. I actually think St. Mary's, unless it gets the auto bid, I think it's doomed, which is unfortunate timing for St. Mary's because Mark View told me he thinks this team is better than St. Mary's teams in recent seasons. But every time I watch them play, they lose, and I don't think that they are tournament-worthy overall. So wait and see on them. And then with the small schools, we will have to wait and see what the, what the conference tournaments bring out. And I'm referring to Belmont. I'm referring to Lipscomb. I'm referring to, say, even New Mexico State. There are, just a, there are a few you know, smaller schools that are involved there. I'll tie it off with this. I think that Ole Miss is probably going to get in, but I'm way... I'm not as heavy on Ole Miss as a lot of people are, and their next game is at Kentucky. So I think that they're going to slip into that 10-11 range. Keep an eye on that. VCU looks pretty good. Florida took a terrible loss. Lost to Georgia. Now, Florida is another team that I'm not as high on as other people. Bama lost as well. That's trouble for them. So we And I'm not even getting to all the teams, but that's just kind of a smattering there. It's uh, One last thing, and I'll turn it back to you, Paris, before we wrap up the pod. What happens every single year, and it's, I guess it's unavoidable and it's inevitable, but we get to March, and the results we see play out when there's more urgency and more attention on college basketball tend to take on what we think is more significance. But, and this is why I love what the committee does here, what happens on the first night of the season when North Carolina wins at Wofford has just as much impact as what we're going to see happen this week with Minnesota or this week with Seton Hall or this week with Arizona State or whatever. So let's try and remember body of work, take into account injuries if they are there and, and et cetera, et cetera. But the bubble... Um, in a weird way, it felt like it, it expanded and yet tightened at the same time. I thought it was a, a very noisy weekend, and there's still a lot to be figured out. If your team is projected on the 10 line or lower, do not have any confidence you're going to be in yet because they can easily get bounced if they lose two or three games. You and I are on the same page with St. Mary's. I don't get that at all. Um, like I know the computer numbers are good. They're like 35th at Ken Palm, 38th in the net. But an 11-loss West Coast Conference team that's 1-6 in, in quad one opportunities? I what don't do we even? I'm baffled. 
I, I think they're probably the most vexing bubble team to me this season. And I, anyway, one continue. One is different than the other season, and I know, but like they were third. They 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 weren't thirty and six on selection Sunday, but they were. Um, I can tell you what they were on selection Sunday last year. On selection Sunday last year, they were twenty eight and five and didn't get in. And now they're going to get in with for them to get an at large that they'd have to lose again. Now they're going to get in with 12 losses and one quadrant one win. Get out of my face. One and three in neutrals. I, uh, yeah, and the and you know the strength of schedule is better than recent years, but uh, that one I don't quite get. Oh, I also I'll also note this: Ohio State lost Caleb Wesson uh, right. for an unspecified amount of time. He is expected to return for the Big Ten. Read into that what you will. Ohio State's still comfortably in, but if it loses, it's got two tough opponents upcoming at Northwestern. So it's a road game. It's tricky. Then they host Wisconsin. Um, just you know, keep an eye on the Buckeyes there. They need, I think, they need one more win to absolutely feel comfortable there. Again, as I said on last the uh, most recent pod, it just feels like the tens and elevens and twelves are really underwhelming, and because of that, like they're by nature, if you're if you're projected as a twelve, like you're not in good standing with a week to go, and and the league tournament is still to come. But uh, but there's a lot of jockeying still going on. It was a, it was as expected though, a noisy weekend around the bubble for a lot of teams more than normal, I think. No, the point you made just now, I think, is something people need to remember because everybody's looking at brackets now and talking about, oh, we're first four out. If you are first – or how about this? Oh, we're last four in. If you're last four in right now, you're probably not good because the bubble's going to shrink. You know, I, I think Wofford wins the Southern Conference Tournament, but, like, what if they don't? Because they're getting in no matter what. What if somebody other than Nevada or Utah State – and I can't even imagine it – but, like, what if somebody other than Nevada or Utah State wins the yeah. Mountain West – what if there's a bid stealer out of the A-10? The one that, and I'm not just saying this based on where I live, I promise, but Memphis playing in FedEx Forum is scary. Um, you know, they've already beaten Central Florida there by 20. They've only lost twice inside FedEx Forum all year, once to Tennessee, once to Cincinnati. Um, both games were relatively competitive. They were never going to beat Tennessee, but they, they hung around with them, and they were up double digits with 14 minutes to go against Cincinnati before falling apart. And then this past weekend, they went up to Cincinnati and had the ball uh, with a chance to win the game in the final seconds. That create, you know, caused It was a turnover, but if they'd have got a shot off and the shot would have went in, they, they'd have won the game if it was a three-pointer. Um, they're playing better than they, they've been playing, and they'll have a massive home court advantage. And when I texted Kim Pomeroy a few weeks ago, and keep in mind, Houston's computer numbers have come down Memphis's have gone up since this text, but when I asked him a few weeks ago, like, give me a projected score for Houston Memphis inside FedEx Forum. In other words, best team in the league against Memphis inside FedEx Forum, it was 78-72. Now I bet it would be, instead of a six-point difference, like maybe five or four. My point being, only two teams in the American are going to be favored over Memphis in FedEx Forum, Houston-Cincinnati, and neither will be a significant favorite. So, like, if you're a bubble team, you're rooting like crazy for somebody to knock Memphis out of that thing. Because suddenly, if the Americans are three-bid league, it becomes a four. If it's a four-bid league, it becomes a five. That's bad for you. So keep in mind, that bubble is going to shrink. And whatever, however many spots we think we have right now, by, by Selection Sunday, March 17th, I guess it is, we're not going to have that many spots. Um, and the point you, you – know, I made it on Twitter on Saturday. You referenced a bit of Clinton, uh, about Clemson. Um, if If – if I were a coach, I would. If Clemson doesn't make the NCAA tournament, I would print their resume out, and I would talk to my team about it 
every other day. Because I know that coaches often stress, you got to play every possession. You know, no possessions off. Like every coach says that. I don't think every player understands the real importance of it. And I don't even think people like me understand the importance of it until it's in the rearview mirror. Like in real time, it's like, I don't know if every possession really matters. But with Clemson, I mean, they're sitting here right now and they're 17 and 12, very much on the bubble. They've got two one-point losses and three two-point losses. Like you really take a small handful of possessions and flip them. In other words, make this missed shot a made shot, make this, um, you know, this, this, uh, you know, missed assignment on the defensive end, a turnover. I mean, really, you could probably flip five possessions in this entire season and turn Clemson from 17 and 12 into 22 and 7. You know, from a team that is on the bubble to a top 25 team, five possessions, probably this entire season would do that. And it is a reminder that, obviously, this is an extreme example. But sometimes it is really just a possession here, a possession there. Not a half here, half there. Certainly not a game here, game there. But a possession here, a possession there can really be the difference between you making the tournament and not making the tournament. And Clemson has got a chance to be a big example of that. They do. Um, I think they are good enough to be a tourney team, but they need they need a couple of really good wins down the stretch here. As we wrap up, this has uh, been a marathon. This has been a Selection Sunday worthy. We're feeling it. I do want to note here, as we're just talking bubble team stuff, A-Sun Tournament gets going on Monday. So, you know, playoff college basketball gets going Monday. And then on Tuesday, the Big South, the Horizon and then the Patriot get rolling. We will not have an automatic bid handed out for those who are curious and those who really love their college hoops will always remember the OVC always gets that first berth now that the Ivy has a playoff. So that will be Saturday. That's the only bid. And then there are three more from the Big South, Missouri Valley, and ASUN that will be handed out Sunday. We'll get to that later in the week. But if you are jonesing just for March and for, uh, for brackets, ASUN's got you covered on Monday. Four games. Is that Brad Pitt movie World War Z? It is World War Z. Thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Got all these zombies, like, climbing <laughs> up on each other. That's the Big East right now. <laughs> and, like, Xavier is weirdly near the top. You want to talk about bid thieves, like, Xavier's got, uh, you know, any team I think is, except I don't think Providence, and I don't think, and I know what DePaul did on Sunday, but I think those are the only two that I don't think can win the Big East tournament. I think all the other eight can. But, yeah, World War Z, um, bunch of zombies climbing up a wall that's my i've got my doctor strange big 12 theory and now i've got uh world war biggies with that yeah shouts to devin downey shouts to chester south carolina shouts to terry mf and teagle he's the legend shouts to larnell shouts to brad pitt and remember please go subscribe to the ion college basketball podcast via apple podcast rated favorably five stars nice comments that's all i've ever asked from you you do that i'll owe you forever and either way we're going to talk to you again either really late Tuesday or really uh, a relatively early Wednesday. We'll figure that out after we get uh, after we push stop on this one. So late Tuesday, early Wednesday, we'll be back till then. Take care.